Welcome to the Public Morality. The Ninth Amendment reads, The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. In just 21 words, the Ninth Amendment confers no specific rights such as freedom of speech or due process, but offers an invaluable conduit so that liberty could keep pace with the ever-evolving American experiment as it advances and interprets the scope of the Constitution. As we are taping this broadcast on Constitution Day, we thought it prudent to focus our attention on the amendment of few words that has been our constitutional bolo knife that clears the overgrown foliage that would impede liberty and equality. My guest is esteemed legal scholar, Professor Lawrence Tribe. Professor Tribe is the Carl M. Loeb University Professor and Professor Emeritus of Constitutional Law at Howard University. He is author of myriad books, essays, and citations. On numerous occasions, he has argued before the Supreme Court. And during his tenure at Harvard, Professor Tribe has also had several notable students take his constitutional law class, including Texas Senator Ted Cruz, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts, Associate Justice Elena Kagan, and former President Barack Obama. We are honored to have him return to the public morality. Professor Lawrence Tribe, welcome to the public morality. Very good to be with you. Now, I know, isn't it a federal law that since we're taping this show on Constitution Day, that any institution of higher learning, um, their, their federal dollars are tied to having some sort of activity on Constitution Day? So I wonder if this will qualify. I, just <laughs> I think it will, and I have to begin by wishing a happy 233rd birthday. Uh, to the United States Constitution. It, it, uh, it was born in Philadelphia 233 years ago today, and I think our fondest hope will be that we can celebrate its 234th anniversary <laughs> next September 17th, which may depend on the outcome of the forthcoming election, because, you know, nothing lasts forever. And... Well, well, here's Democracy a hope- is fragile. Here's a hopeful thought. September 17th was also the Battle of Antietam. So if we can survive That's that, I, I like our chances. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay. Uh, let's begin, sir. Uh, within the Bill of Rights, save for the Third Amendment, uh, which talks about quartering soldiers, the Ninth Amendment is perhaps the least discussed, but that doesn't mitigate its influence on the American narrative. So if you would, talk about the Ninth Amendment and why was it included in the Bill of Rights? Well, there was a great worry at the time the Constitution was first proposed in 1787 and sent to the states uh, that without a Bill of Rights, it really would give too much power to the government. But there was a countervailing worry that a bill of rights would be like a bill of lading, that it would be like a a laundry list, and that if things didn't manage to get listed in the bill of rights, they would be dropped. They would be treated as though they were left on the cutting room floor. And James Madison, in particular, uh, was one of the people who shared that worry. He made it clear in the Constitutional Convention that he thought maybe we didn't need a bill of rights, it would just be implied. But if we had one, there was there was a fear that some people would say, well, you didn't list among those rights things like the freedom of thought or the right to decide whether to have children. 
or any number of other rights. And if they weren't enumerated, they might be regarded as excluded. And to avoid that, Madison ultimately proposed, because without this proposal, the Bill of Rights, I think, would have failed. He proposed a kind of saving clause, which would basically say that our failure to list something should not be treated as some kind of affirmative proof that it doesn't exist. They wanted a kind of rule that when you read the Bill of Rights, you shouldn't read it as exclusive. And that was essential to the ratification of the Bill of Rights, without which the whole Constitution wouldn't have been ratified. So the Ninth Amendment, really the only part of the Constitution, which is a kind of rule directed at at those who read the Constitution, sort of leaps off the page and says, dear reader, you know, uh, it says the enumeration in the Constitution, certain rights shall not be construed. That means must not be understood, cannot be interpreted to deny or disparage others. That means other rights retained by the people. That rule, which leaps off the page, speaks to you uh, and to me as readers of the Constitution, speaks to all citizens and certainly all judges. That rule was indispensable, and without that rule, people could much more easily have made the argument that some judges still try to make, I think wrongly, that because the Constitution doesn't mention something like a right to privacy or a right to reproductive freedom— Uh, that those rights just are not part of our birthright. They're not federal rights that can be enforced by federal judges as part of the supreme law of the land. It's a rule that gets rid of that, supposedly, although it's never been gotten rid of completely. That's, in many ways, the deepest tension, despite all of the other fancy names like originalism and textualism, the biggest tension among people in terms of how to read the Constitution with respect to the rights we have as citizens, is whether you read it as a kind of, in a constipated way, as a very specific laundry list, and if you don't fit within its four corners, you're out out of the ballpark. Or do you read it as a kind of general blueprint with a suggestive diagram that you have to extrapolate from and connect the dots of? That's the way I tend to read it, and I think the Ninth Amendment is the main source that demonstrates that's how it ought to be read. Yeah, and we're we're, we're going to talk about some of those things you mentioned about originalism and textualism in a moment. We're going to come back to that, but you know, one of the interesting things uh, for me as someone who has read it a couple times, the Constitution, when you look at the Bill of Rights, um, it's clearly influenced by the Declaration of Independence as well as other texts. The first eight amendments in particular seem to be more uh, focused more on the declaration's indictments, say, for example, speedy trial and quartering troops and and due process, more so than the lofty articulations of natural law. So my question, sir, is the Ninth Amendment designed to address the difficulty inherent in trying to codify natural law? Well, in part, but I, I think I wouldn't go quite as far as you do about the First Eight Amendments. I mean, there are parts of the First Eight Amendments which are concerned with very substantive things, like the Second Amendment, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, 
setting aside all of the controversies over what that means, uh, it is a substantive right. It's a right of people to be armed. The Third Amendment about not having uh, the government use your home to quarter its troops is a substantive right, not just a procedural criminal law right. The Fourth Amendment talks about the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. Now, that's partly about the evidence that can be introduced at trial, but that's not all. I mean, when the government ransacks your home for no reason, or if Bill Barr decides that you are guilty of sedition because you're planning a peaceful protest, and he rummages through your house and smashes your stuff and doesn't introduce any of it in evidence so that the exclusionary rule doesn't come into play. The Fourth Amendment does come into play. He's violated your right to be secure in your in your home. Um, and so a lot of the First Eight Amendments are about basic human rights against an overpowerful government. And then the Ninth Amendment is kind of the capstone. It says that we haven't listed everything, uh, and the fact that we haven't listed something doesn't mean that you don't have a right to it. You know, as you were giving your answer, I was thinking of um, the, uh, Charles Duell, who, who ran the patent office in, in, eight, in 1899, and he famously said that uh, anything that can be invented has been invented. Um, mm. And so the I, I'm hearing you say the Ninth Amendment, so the antithesis of that is that right. to, to prohibit us from saying anything that can be enumerated already has been enumerated. Exactly. And it's, it's in part because we haven't imagined everything that the government might do, every imaginable way that it might undermine humanity. And the fact that we haven't imagined it yet doesn't mean that it couldn't come along and be a problem in the future. There's also a backward-looking element. There are a lot of things we take for granted, not because they're futuristic, not because we haven't imagined them yet, because we really can't fathom the government violating them, like the government telling you, you know, what what time to put your kids to bed. That's not a fancy high-tech thing. Um, but nobody would have imagined that the government would tell you how to raise your children, and yet totalitarian governments begin to do that. And so the Ninth Amendment basically says we haven't listed everything, partly because we assumed we didn't have to, and partly because we might not have thought of it yet. You know, one of the things uh, that uh, is, to me is fascinating about the Ninth Amendment and, and the way the way you just framed it, sir, is rarely, if ever, have I ever heard anyone say, I believe my Ninth Amendment rights have been violated specifically, but yet the ethos of the, of, of the Ninth Amendment we find in other cases. And, and one that I want to bring to your attention is the 1823 case of uh, uh, Corfield versus Coriel. And is that an example of the court utilizing uh, the ethos of the Ninth Amendment, citing privileges and immunities uh, of the Fourth Amendment so that one can retain the natural rights uh, that go wherever they go in a civil society? Well, Corfield is really about interstate privileges or immunities. It's about the question of whether states can deprive you of certain basic economic rights, like the right to earn a living or the right to go fishing or something like that. Um, when they would protect those rights for their own citizens. In other words, can they arbitrarily say 
that because you're from New Hampshire, you can't, you know, you can't walk in the hills of Rhode Island. Um, and Corfield basically assumed there are all kinds of basic rights that aren't enumerated with respect to which states have to treat the citizens of other states equally. But that's all based on Article 4, which is about interstate equality. When it comes to how a state treats its own citizens, physicians like Corfield in 1823 don't provide very much help. There, you need to turn either to the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, which basically says that states cannot deprive citizens of their privileges or immunities as United States citizens, or to the Liberty Clause of the 14th Amendment that says states can't deprive any person of liberty without due process of law, or to the Equality Clause. Whichever clause you rely on as the basic home of liberty, the real question then becomes, what is the content of that liberty? Some people think it it is defined by historic notions of natural law. That may sound kind of generous and expansive, except that natural law is awfully cramped in the view of many people like Justice Thomas. Other people think it should be defined as an evolving concept of what it means to be a citizen with equal dignity in the Republic. That's the way I view it. But whichever way you view it, the Ninth Amendment is an important rule that you can point to, not as an affirmative source of your rights, but as a principle that says you've got rights that judges have to try to figure out, even though they're not listed in the Constitution. So it's not exactly right for someone to say, you have violated my Ninth Amendment rights. Unlike things like the First Amendment, which protects certain rights like speech and peaceful assembly and freedom of the press, or the Fourth Amendment, which protects certain kinds of privacy, the Ninth Amendment is not a bucket of rights. It's a rule about how you read the rest of the Constitution. And it says you can't read it in such a way that says the only rights you have are the ones you can find in a particular named bucket. You, you mentioned this earlier, I want to come back to it. You, you talked about the, uh, the tension that the Ninth Amendment creates for those who uh, hold the doctrines of originalism, textualism, or, or strict, con- uh, strict construction. So uh, would you mind sort of giving a Reader's Digest explanation of those uh, various orthodoxies and how the Ninth Amendment specifically creates tension for those who cling to those very tightly. Well, if they're serious about it, that if some people use words like originalism, textualism, strict constructionism, really kind of as as slogans, bumper stickers for a cramped understanding of human rights under the Constitution. Those people, though they are many and quite influential, are not people that I think are even worth debating on a program as serious as yours. There are other people who are more serious about their use of those terms, and what they argue is we really have to worry when it comes to a constitution that is written down and that is supposed to last for the ages, what it means, you know, and what it means they depend on what people understood it to mean. For example, they talked about the power of the government to intervene to put down domestic violence. It's clear that they meant 
insurrection. Not, you know, disputes between a husband and a wife or, or a man and his boyfriend or something. So we have to ask, what did it mean? And I'm quite happy to ask, what did the Ninth Amendment mean when it was adopted? And you have to look at its words. Its words tell you that it meant something about how you shall or shall not construe the Constitution. I'm an originalist in that respect and a textualist. I want to say, you know, the text of the Ninth Amendment originally meant, always meant, still means that you cannot construe the Constitution to deny or disparage rights just because they are not enumerated in the Constitution. So what happens is that there are people who call themselves textualists or originalists. What they really mean is that they are right-wingers, but they don't want to say that. And they want to stand behind a cloak of originalism or textualism, and they then say, well, the Ninth Amendment doesn't really mean anything. Robert Bork, famously, when he was nominated to the Supreme Court, said the Ninth Amendment is an inkblot. doesn't really mean anything. And I say, if you really take the text and the meaning of the Constitution seriously, you can't pretend that you can't understand it just because it doesn't have an obvious and immediate meaning. You have to try to figure out how to use it. So from my point of view, if you're a real originalist or a real textualist, the Ninth Amendment just feeds right into your philosophy. If you're a faux-originalist or a faux-textualist who uses those things simply as, as bumper stickers to excuse denying people their rights, then you've got problems with the Ninth Amendment. You, you, you mentioned Judge Bork, and I, I want to follow up with that, uh, because it, it, I'm not sure if he said that during the Supreme Court hearing, but he, but he also offered at one point that the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, which uh, uh, um, where we get our the, the famous states' rights argument and, and federalism, we, he George Judge Bork also offered that those two should be read together. And I wonder how do, how, how would you respond to that? I think they should be, and in fact, that undermines the kind of narrow reading of the Ninth Amendment that Judge Bork and then Justice Scalia after him and some current justices want to offer. That is, they want to read the Ninth Amendment simply to mean that state courts retain the power to protect rights under a state constitution that are beyond those rights that are protected under the federal constitution. Well, that would be a perfectly plausible reading of the Ninth Amendment if that didn't make it redundant with the Tenth, because the Tenth Amendment already makes clear that the power to protect more rights under a state constitution than you would have under the federal constitution is a power that is reserved to the states. The Tenth Amendment says the power is not delegated to the United States or prohibited to the states, are reserved to the states or the people. One of the powers reserved to the states and the people is the power to give their citizens more rights than the federal constitution confers. For example, in a famous controversy involving eminent domain in um, New London, Connecticut, a house was taken by eminent domain uh, to build a development park. That wasn't a public use. It looked like a taking of private property for private use. But they were going to give just compensation. 
the fair value of the property. And all that the Fifth Amendment guarantees is that when your property is taken for public use, you will get a fair price for it, just compensation. People were all exercised about that. Justice, you know, various justices on the Supreme Court who felt they had to join the majority didn't like what the state of Connecticut had done. But they made the point that if Connecticut wants to protect homeowners from that kind of abuse of eminent domain, all they have to do is put it in their state constitution. Private property cannot be taken, even for public benefit, unless it is a very general benefit, like a road or a park. You could put that in the state constitution. The Ninth Amendment, the Tenth Amendment, gives you the power to do that. You don't need the Ninth Amendment to guarantee that kind of right under the state constitution. So the only point of having the Ninth Amendment, once you've already got the Tenth, is to say that there are federal rights, not just state rights, beyond those that are enumerated. And that's a long-winded answer. The bottom line is the Ninth Amendment and the Tenth should be read together. In fact, part of my philosophy is you have to read the whole Constitution together. Reading it as a bunch of little pieces doesn't make sense. You have to make it coherent. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Harvard legal scholar Professor Lawrence Tribe, and we're discussing the Ninth Amendment. Professor Tribe is also the author of uh, many books, many essays, many citations, and his latest, Attend to Presidency, uh, Power of Impeachment, that's now out on in paperback. Uh, Professor Tribe, uh, would it be fair to offer that the Ninth Amendment provide provided the constitutional heft for the ratification of 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the Reconstruction Amendments, along with the uh, 19th Amendment that prohibited denying voting rights based on gender? You didn't need the Ninth Amendment for that. I mean, all of those amendments designed to incorporate the basic inspirations of equality that are expressed in the Declaration of Independence to make them part of the Constitution, part of what Abraham Lincoln called a new birth of freedom. Those things were basically hammered out before they were written down in ink in the Civil War amendments, abolishing slavery, granting equal protection, and getting rid of Dred Scott v. Sanford, giving the franchise to black men, and then in the 19th Amendment, extending it to women. All of those things were the product of political movements and of war written in blood on the battlefields of places like Gettysburg, even before they were written in ink. But you didn't need anything like the Ninth Amendment to do that. What you needed was political struggle and, to some extent, military struggle. How do you respond to those who, um, you sort of touched on this earlier, I'm going to come back to it, those who offer that uh, they worry that the Ninth Amendment uh, unduly encroaches on the notion of federalism in a similar manner the way the 14th Amendment uh, and the Doctrine of Corporation sort of place restraints on state authority originally conferred in the 10th Amendment? Well, I think it's a question of how you interpret it. The 9th Amendment just tells you uh, that there are rights that are not enumerated. Now, if somebody wanted to say one of those rights uh, is, is the right to dissolve your state government, well, that would be crazy because that would eliminate the sovereignty of the states, and that's part of the architecture. But somebody who understands the Ninth Amendment as putting limits on what the state government, for all its power, 
can tell you to do in the privacy of your home, I think, is not dissolving states' rights. It's simply putting a limit on what states can do. I mean, after all, if you ask yourself, what is it in the Constitution that prevents states from telling you what time to put your kids to bed, what bedtime stories to read them, you know, in what positions to have sex with, with your intimate other? There's nothing in the Constitution that discusses any of that, but we all take for granted that that's beyond the power of the state and that calling it a matter of states' rights doesn't really advance the argument. Those things that are beyond the power of the state and that are within the sphere of personal and community and and neighborhood privacy, essentially, those are the things that are ultimately indirectly protected by the Ninth Amendment, consistent with states' rights. But you have to keep in mind that the Constitution is a you know, house of many mansions. It's got principles of separation of powers among the branches of the federal government, principles of division of power vertically between the national government and the states and localities, and principles of division of power between the public sphere and private life. And they all have to be accommodated in a sensible way. But isn't that, isn't that the, the contrarian argument that people put forth post-Griswold uh, v. Connecticut 1965, and because of that you get Roe v. Wade? Is, isn't that sort of the contrarian argument that uh, we talked earlier about the textualism and originalism argument? Well, constraining in the sense that if you take the Constitution seriously in this way, it leaves a lot of difficult questions to unelected judges. And that's true, and that's not ideal. But the alternative of the tyranny of either the minority, which is what Trump wants to set up, or the tyranny of the majority, which is what a real populist might want to set up, uh, those alternatives aren't very good either. That is, we have to have independent courts to protect rights and to do it in ways that are not always self-evident. We don't want them to override majority will arbitrarily and without convincing arguments, but we don't want those in power to have boundless authority limited only by the explicit laundry lists in the Constitution. Uh, Professor Tribe, in our collective understanding, um, constitutional understanding in, in the public discourse, are, are we even, in your opinion, raising the right questions? And this, these are my words. It seems to me that so much of the public discourse there's a binary conversation. And I'm hearing you say, in light of our conversation regarding the Ninth Amendment, there are more important questions for consideration that might expand our constitutional understanding than the binary, say, textualism on one side and a living constitution on the other. Yeah, I think most dichotomies are somewhat oversimple. I think that we're dealing with a kind of multi-vectored, multi-dimensional problem of combining our history, our traditions, our aspirations, our dreams of what it means to have a fair and decent republic with our sense of what the appropriate limits of various institutions are, and we're groping our way forward. I just don't want that trip to be cut short by ultimately the election of somebody who says, I am the law, what I say is the law, the law doesn't matter. Uh, none of these conversations matter. What I say matters. And I think that's what we're confronting, honestly, in, in November of 2020. And I hope, I really hope that we manage not just to come to that.
As a legal scholar and someone who has uh, argued numerous cases before the Supreme Court, uh, do do you worry in in our again in our public discourse uh, beyond the Ninth Amendment that that too often uh, we we the general public sort of derive our opinions about the court based on the particular outcome and not enough on the process and and I'm thinking specifically about the uh, the, the the case of the Denver Baker. Uh, who didn't want to uh, make the same-sex wedding cake, and the head, uh, many headlines read "Court sided with Baker," which really wasn't the case. And do you worry that we look at the outcome for our constitutional understanding than than the process? Well, I suppose that's one of the binary things I worry about. I think we should worry about how decisions are made, as well as whether we like the uh, the final outcome. But I'm even more worried about how we are influenced by the particular members of our tribe, not to make a pun on my own name, but we've gotten into a kind of a tribal mentality where if you're part of the cult of Trump, what you like is what he says you should like, you know, and, and whether you've drunk the Kool-Aid or not, whether if you're part of the cult of Pelosi or something else, you, you kind of gravitate to what she says. I, I wish people would think a little more for themselves, begin to think about you know, well, if I go, if I go with this, what what will it mean in the long run? How will it affect my kids, my grandkids? How will it affect the kind of country we have? And I I'm worried that people, partly because too few people read books, too many people get all their news from one source, too many people listen to only one point of view. I'm worried that that we could really lose the greatest part of what we have inherited in this country to a a process of thinking that is fundamentally, you know, fundamentally shallow and short-sighted. Professor Lawrence Tribe, Harvard University legal scholar and the author to end a presidency, the power of impeachment. Sir, I want to thank you uh, for taking the time to be with us today on the public morality. Much appreciated. Thank you, Byron. It's my pleasure. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at PublicMorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. And in the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.